The epistle reading for the third Sunday in Lent is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For considering your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Gospel in St. John, the second chapter. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. The disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the gospel of the Lord's. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For those who don't read the Bible, or perhaps for even those who do, but perhaps see Jesus just as some kind of really mellow hippie who never gets upset, 
Our reading's quite shocking. Jesus makes a whip. He drives out animals. He flips over the tables of the money changers. Men and animals alike go fleeing in all directions. He empties out these animals so that no one can even make a sacrifice on that day. It's rather shocking. But the question we want to answer tonight is why? Why would Jesus do such a thing? Why is this such an important scene? We need to go back all the way to creation. See, the opening pages of Genesis tell us that the whole world is the Lord's temple. And as you move throughout the biblical story, then you have the Lord telling the Israelites to build specific temples, like the tabernacle, which was a movable temple, and then the temple itself. And these places were important, the tabernacle and the temple. That was a place where the Lord lived. His presence dwelt among them and the tabernacle and then the temple. It's the place where God revealed himself to his people. It is a place where God forgave their sin. Through that place, through the temple, the Lord brought rest to his people and through the temple he ruled over them. And so the temple was central to their life and worship. And yet, as we know, the temple was often abused, misused. The people did not use it the way God intended them to use it. So sometimes they came and they offered sacrifices apart from faith. They thought, well, as long as we go through the motions, God has to honor this. Sometimes they built right outside the temple doors places where they offered sacrifices to demons on the same holy ground where the Lord alone should have been worshipped. Other, other times they were pretty blatant about using it as a cover for their wickedness. Oh, you wouldn't ever touch us. We offered sacrifices. Sure, we may have murdered and stolen and all kinds of awful stuff, but... We did the temple stuff. So that when the Lord tells them through Jeremiah, I'm coming to wipe out this temple and it's going to be gone, the people say, the temple, the temple, the temple. God won't touch us because he won't destroy his temple. And yeah, that's exactly what God did. He judged them. He punished them. He tore it down to the ground. fact, Ezekiel sees the very presence of God leaving the temple. And yet he promised one day it would return. And by Jesus' day, the temple had been rebuilt. They began rebuilding it when they came back from the exile. Herod was still adding things to it to make it nicer to keep the Jews happy. But by Jesus' day, something else was going on in the temple courts. There weren't these sacrifices to other gods being made. That had been cleaned up. But especially on the major festivals, when you had all these people flooding to Jerusalem, they would fill up the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles were supposed to worship. And they would fill it with animals and money changers. Because they had a rule. 
you couldn't buy the animals with any money. You had to get the temple coin. So the money changers thought, if we're going to do exchanges for money, we might as well make a pretty decent profit off of this. And so they did. They ripped off these weary travelers who couldn't bring an animal all the way with them, and they charged them ridiculous rates of interest. They had indeed turned the house of worship to the house of trade. And so Jesus, early in his ministry, comes to his temple, as Malachi says, suddenly. He shows up and he's angry. He's angry that they've turned this place of worship, this place of prayer, into a place of trade. The word literally is like emporium for us, right? They've turned it into a shopping mall. So Jesus cleanses it. Now, he does it at the beginning of his ministry and does it at the end. Why does he do it twice? Jesus does something twice, we should probably pay careful attention to it and ask ourselves, what in the world is he doing? Well, if you remember, the book of Leviticus, probably a section you skim over because it seems irrelevant to us today, what do you do if you have leprosy in your house? Remember that passage? It's a little strange. You have the priest come and inspect it. And they kind of draw a circle around it to make sure it doesn't spread. And if it spreads, though, when they come back for the second visit, then your house gets leveled to the ground. Jesus shows up and he inspects the leprosy of their sin in the temple. And guess what? It was there the first time. And he comes back a second time and it's still there. So he promises them that it's going to be torn down. And indeed, it was. In 70 AD, that temple that Jesus promised would be torn down, that he signified would be torn down by these two cleansings, was torn down to the grounds. And for us, I think we miss the significance of that. Central to the Old Testament church, central to Old Testament Christians, everything revolved around Jerusalem and the temple. Everything. But not anymore. Since that day, it's revolved around Christ's holy church. More on that in a moment. I want us to step back, though, and see if there's ways in which we can abuse God's holy temple today. Because it's easy to look back at the Jews and say, man, I can't believe they abused God's house like that. That's really awful. Well, let me give you a really extreme example to start. I saw a video, this is real, I sent it to Pastor Walter, you can verify this. A church had a Super Bowl service. And the pastor had a halftime of his sermon. He was dressed as a referee. And during the halftime of his sermon, he did lots of weird dances to songs that don't belong in a church. And then, he rode on a wrecking ball, like Miley Cyrus song wrecking ball to that song during the church service while everyone's cheering and hooting and hollering and then after that break he went back to his so-called sermon if that doesn't fit why jesus cleansed the temple i don't know what does you're turning god's house of worship into a place of entertainment 
A place not of prayer and worship, but a place to entertain the masses. Jesus, I believe, would have chased them out. That same church the year before covered a Bible like a football and had someone kick it across the stage. That obviously that kind of stuff has no place in church. Now I realize that's kind of extreme, but then there's churches that literally are just about making money. Especially lots of money for the pastor who keeps telling everyone to give and give and give so that they can buy their massive home, homes plural usually, their private jets, so that they can live nice, comfortable lives. But it's also true just any time there's false teaching in God's church. That's an abuse of God's holy house. So too is using the church like the Old Testament saints when we use church as a cover for our sin. As if we use church attendance as a way to kind of check a box to tell God, well, I did this, so you owe me. Or perhaps, too, thinking back to the temple, the temple, the temple. What about those who think, well, my grandparents, my parents, they were very active Christians. They even built this place. They were Lutherans of Lutherans. I can trace my genealogy all the way back to Martin Luther himself. That can be a real blessing. But if it becomes a cover for lack of faith, then it's an awful thing. It's nothing other than pride and arrogance. So too those who think, well, I was confirmed in an LCMS church, therefore I must be okay. Even though perhaps they're living unrepentant lives of unrepentant sin, they don't confess Christ, they don't go to church, and they just don't care. It's the same kind of stuff that Jesus is upset about here. He's upset about with his saints in the Old Testament. So Jesus, too, calls us to examine ourselves and to repent. To not misuse his holy house of worship for things that are not worship. The heart of what we want to talk about this morning, that Jesus is the greater temple. Ezekiel saw the presence of God return to the temple, and this was fulfilled the first time when Jesus, as a baby, comes into the temple. And here in our reading, as he comes back to the temple again, Jesus' body, he tells us, is the new temple. Right? Think about it. If the first temple is where God's presence dwells, Jesus is the very place where the fullness of God's presence dwells. If the temples where God was revealed to his people, Jesus is where God is revealed to all people. If the temple was the place where the forgiveness of sins was given because of the sacrifices there, Jesus, who is the sacrifice, who is the fount of forgiveness of sins, he is the very embodiment of everything the temple pointed forward to. So remember when he's 12, he's sitting in the temple answering questions, and he says, I have to be about my father's things. All of those things pointed to him. He and his body would give God's presence, would reveal God and forgive sin. And through him, God's rest and rule would come to all mankind. And so he says, destroy this temple, his very body, 
and in three days he would raise it up. A glorious promise of his death and resurrection. And the Jews there laugh at him. 46 years it took to build this temple. They don't understand what he's saying. And Paul tells us why. The cross is foolishness to those who despise it. But Paul also says that the very, the very weakness of God, the weakest thing God can do, being naked and dying on a cross, is stronger than anything men have ever done. The thing that looks like all foolishness, a dying God upon a cross, is greater than any man's wisdom has ever conceived. Because Jesus upon the cross rescues us from sin and death. He does give us that forgiveness of sins. So that wherever you have Jesus, there you have the very presence of God in the flesh. Wherever you have Jesus, there you have the new temple. And so here tonight, Jesus is present, which means here tonight, gathered together, we are in his holy temple. Because his temple now is wherever his holy word is preached and his holy sacraments given out for us. So that here tonight we can have true rest and refreshments. He is the true temple, the greater temple, for you and your salvation. He did exactly as he promised, just as he said, all for us. And yet, it doesn't even stop there. We just sang about this a moment ago. It's quoting St. Peter. The Bible says, now, you are living stones that make up this new temple. Because you are filled with the Holy Spirit. So that individually, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And collectively, together, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think very practically about what this means, though. That means wherever you go, wherever you go, is holy land, is a holy place, because you have the very spirit of God dwelling within you. You have God's presence with you. Through you, God is revealed to others as you do works of mercy and charity for others, as you share the gospel with others. And because you share the gospel with others, the forgiveness of sins goes out from you into the world as well. As you proclaim Jesus. As you go out into the world, you take God's rest and refreshment to a broken, sinful, and weary world. We should never forget, too, that because you are God's temple, because you are living stones... Is it coming upon you to make sure that this place remains a holy place of worship? February was the 50th year anniversary of Seminex, of the exile, of all of that that many of you remember quite well in the LCMS. It was you all, the laity that saved Lutheran Church Missouri Synod during those years. Because you would not let God's holy place be defiled by false teaching. And that's still a duty for us today. And our hope is 
that as we are this temple of living stones, we look forward to the day when once again, God is going to return, Jesus will return, and we'll have again this worldwide temple where God rules and reigns and gives us rest through Jesus for all eternity on the new heavens and the new earth. It's what we look forward to. The disciples remembered Psalm 69, zeal for his house consumed him. Zeal for his father's house ate him up. It is his zeal for his father and the purpose for which his father sent him that would literally devour him and eat him up on the cross. That he might make us living stones. That he might fill us with his Holy Spirit. Jesus allowed the temple of his body to be destroyed and to be raised up again so that we might be with him for all eternity. And so, let us be consumed with a zeal for his holy house. Let us desire to be here in this place, to delight in it, to love it, and to receive the gifts he gives us as stone by stone he builds us up to a marvelous temple. Amen. The peace of God passes all understanding, guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.